The last uh, month or so, we've been looking through the book of Philippians, which is one of the most humbling, but also one of the most joy-giving books in the whole Bible. It's a really a fantastic book. As we go through the book of Philippians, it's not a bad idea. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament, you know. It's not very, very much on the shorter side. It's one of these that you could literally read in 10 to 15 minutes, just straight through. And so it's not a bad idea, as we go through the book of Philippians, to just read through the whole book rather regularly. It's, a, it's one of these that's really great to get into your mind by just kind of saying, okay, each day or, or, or three times a week or something, I'm just going to read through the whole book, uh, and it's going to take me 15 minutes, and, and then you do. And, it, and it, it seeps into your mind all the deeper, I think. Um, so that's something I, I thought I'd encourage you to do. This Sunday, we're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're, we just have two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13. And when, they're, they're just the two verses because they're really important, and we really wanted to focus on them. So listen to to verses 12 and 13 from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Lord, be with us as we look at your word today. And I I do pray that you give us, uh, especially give us insight into um, how, we sh- how, we sh- how our lives should change, how, w- how our lives should look different based on just these two verses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, a whole bunch of us here decided to come and worship, to worship God all together in this place. This place being uh, All Saints Presbyterian Church. We don't often talk about the Presbyterian part of all that. Uh, what, what is Presbyterian? Why are we Presbyterian? What does that mean anyway? Well, I'm not going to get into that in much detail But I will say Presbyterian can mean a lot of different things, actually. Officially, the word Presbyterian means elder-led. Presbyterian churches believe that the New Testament, the closest thing to the New Testament, what we see in uh, in the church in the New Testament, is that it's led by elders who are elected by by the church and given the task of pastoring, Shepherding, leading the people of God at the local level, where it's in, in our denomination is called the session. If you ever hear that term, it's the, the, the elders of just this church. And then there's the presbytery, which is the elders of all the churches in the region. And then there's the general assembly, which is the elders of all the churches in the nation. That's what, a, that's what Presbyterian officially means. But Presbyterian can also have a lot of unofficial things associated with it too. Did you know, for example, that... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, did you know that Presbyterian churches have a significantly higher proportion of introverts than the general population? Did you know that? It's statistically true. Much higher po- uh, population of introverts in Presbyterian churches uh, than there is in the, 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 ge- the general population. Or did you know that historically Presbyterian churches have had a reputation for being theologically oriented? Presbyterian churches tend to attract people who like to think about their faith. And that's badly needed in our culture, in, in, in any culture, really. You know, we need Christians who think about their faith. We, we always need more Christians who are engaged with their minds. And just a, a couple months ago, Shelton, who, who led the first part of the service, uh, he preached a great sermon on uh, being engaged with your mind as a Christian. You can go back and listen to that on the web if you're interested. I've read or heard several theologians say, everyone is a theologian. Everyone. Everyone walking on earth is a theologian. I think it's true. Because to be a theologian just simply means that you have ideas about God. 
that you think about God. You, in some sense, you engage your mind with what is God. Everyone has ideas about God, who he is, what he's like, what he does, what he will or won't do, or whether he even exists at all. If you have an opinion on any of those topics, you're a theologian in some sense. Everyone thinks about something related to God. The question is not whether or not we have ideas about God. The question is whether or not our ideas about God are true. And another way of saying that is where did we get them from? Presbyterians tend to be people who, who think about questions like that. But what's the big risk about being a thinking kind of Christian? What's the big risk? I think it probably is obvious. If we're a thinking kind of Christian, if we're a thinking kind of church, what's the risk? It's good to have ideas about God. It's especially good to have good ideas about God. But what happens if we only think about God? What would we be missing? I think it's probably obvious, but the great risk of being a thinking kind of Christian or a thinking kind of church is that we might spend more time thinking about God than actually doing what he wants us to do. What value is it to think about something and not actually do it? I mean, here's a, here's a what kind of father would I be if I thought lots and lots about how, how much I love my kids and then I didn't really do anything to show them that or communicate that to them? What kind of friend would you be if you, if, if you, in your own mind, you, all you did was think about how wonderful that other person was, but then you, it didn't affect your words or your actions at all. Well, I wouldn't be much of a father, and you wouldn't be much of a friend if we only thought about it and never did it, right? And I think that should be easy to see. One theology professor that I follow on Facebook said it pretty well this past week. He said, if you can't put information into action, it's pretty much useless. You can have all the information you want. Your brain could, you could, you could, you could uh, be like some people I know who are just massive founts of trivia that you, you never asked for, right? I might be guilty of that, actually. <laughs> know lots of things about stuff you don't need to know lots of things about. Um, if, but you, you can have all the information in the world, but if it doesn't affect what you do, what use is it? What's the value? And that's really, I think, what our passage today is about. Let's, let's listen to it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Throughout his entire letter to the, <clears throat> the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul describes some glorious theology. We marveled at it just last week when we read verses 6 through 11 here in chapter 2. These verses describe the shocking humility of Jesus and then his incredible exaltation and his glory. We marveled at that last week. But so much Christian theology is beautiful and amazing it should blow us away, isn't it? Isn't it a lot of it that way? I mean, we think of, uh, let's just think of a couple examples. We think of the doctrine of justification by faith. This is, the, this is the, what the Bible's teaching that God's declaration is that we are not guilty because we have been given the perfect righteousness and goodness of Jesus. Have you thought about that much lately? How is that possible? How can we possibly possess the perfection of God's own Son? I mean, how is that even possible? I think we, we should marvel at that often. How can it be that I should gain from the work of Jesus? I don't deserve it in the slightest. But there it is. That's the gospel. 
Or here's another one, a second glorious doctrine that the Bible teaches, the doctrine of regeneration. Just think, once you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you have been made alive again in Christ Jesus. The prophet Ezekiel uh, <clears throat> described it with one of my favorite analogies in the Bible. He said, once you had a useless heart of stone. Now, if you have a heart of stone, what good is that? If I just had a rock in my chest, you know the weird, I mean, it's not even really a heart, right? I mean, can a stone pump blood? I mean, a heart of stone is so useless that it doesn't even deserve the word, the name heart, you know? And Ezekiel says that the Spirit of God reaches into you and takes out the heart of stone and puts in a, a thumping, beating, blood-pumping heart of flesh. That's regeneration. I once was dead, but now I'm alive again. It's spiritual resurrection. I once was blind, but now I have new eyes and I can see again. That's regeneration. We should marvel at that all the time. Here's one more example. The doctrine of adoption. I wish that we spent a lot more time thinking about ourselves as members of God's family. How often do you think about yourself as a member of God's family? Not only have we been taken into the family, we now enjoy the liberty and the privileges of being children of God. We have His name on us. We have received His Spirit. We have access to the throne of the Creator of the universe, not like subjects of a mighty king, but like children running in to the throne room to see their dad. That's what we have now, because we're part of the family. He loves and He protects us, and He corrects us as His own children. And he made us heirs to inherit all of his promises. And all of that is completely undeserved. He's given it to us purely out of grace. Each of the three doctrines I've just named should stun us. Should just blow us away. Each one is an amazing act of God on our behalf. Central to all of those three is what God has done for us. And not what we have done. So then... I ask, does it follow that we have absolutely nothing to do with our own salvation? You see, that's the tension in the Bible. Yes, yes. We read the Bible and we absolutely affirm the famous theological idea of the Protestant Reformation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet the idea that we have nothing to do with our salvation actually runs completely against the teaching of the New Testament. Even a casual reading of the New Testament will convince you that the New Testament has an awful lot to say about what we should do as followers of Jesus. It turns out, it turns out that how we live seems to be very important to God. Obedience is central to the Christian life. I'll give you four examples from the New Testament of what I mean. Here's four quick examples. First, we have to start with the epistle of James, right? I mean, it's one of the most in-your-face books in the New Testament. James was one of Jesus' brothers, by the way. And he wrote to his fellow Christians about some problems that he saw in the way that their churches were working and the way that the Christians were living. The basic idea of James is, if you want to follow Jesus, you'd better really do it. That's the basic idea of James. And you need to do, he's very specific. He doesn't even just give you some broad principle. If you want to follow Jesus, you better do it. He, he's very specific. He says, and you better do it like this and not like that. He gives real concrete examples. As I said, James is pretty in your face. Listen, this is a quote. He wrote this. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can, faith, can that faith save him? That's his question. What good is that, he says? Faith by itself, without works, is dead. So you believe that God is one. You have great faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. It's it's the first century way of saying awesome. You believe God is one. That's awesome. You know what? Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. So faith apart from works is dead, James says. All that, everything I just quoted is from James chapter 2. So okay, that's James. That's the first example. The second example, look at the general shape of any one of the Apostle Paul's letters. Have you, have you noticed that pretty much all of his letters follow the exact same pattern? They all do. Maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you haven't. But after I tell it to you now, you're going to spot it in every one of his letters. Okay? Here's the pattern. Open up pretty much any letter by the, by the Apostle Paul, and you just start by finding roughly the midpoint of the letter. Where's the midpoint of the letter? You just say, okay, it's six chapters long. I'm going to guess it's probably right about at the end of chapter 3. You know, something along those lines. And before the midpoint, the first half of the letter, uh, pretty much any letter by the Apostle Paul, the first half is about what? Do you know? The first half is always describing the glorious salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's some of the most eloquent and engaging words you will ever read. Some of the most beautiful, I mean, just as, as literature. It's fabulous. It's glorious. It's high. It's lofty. It's fantastic. It's transcendent. He describes how wonderful the gospel is, the good news about Jesus. That's the first half of every letter that the Apostle Paul writes. But then after the midpoint, there's always some pivot in the letter. And then after that, the second half of the letter, if you know the pattern, is about what? The second half of the letter is always about how we are supposed to live in light of the first half of the letter. He always goes something like this. Paul, Paul says something along these lines. Now that you know the truth about who Jesus is and what he did and how wonderful it all is, this is how God wants you to respond. And it's very specific. It's not, it's not just, oh, uh, and by the way, uh, be good. You know, It's very specific. He has some very clear instructions uh, that God, God, now that you know the gospel, God wants you to react this way. By doing good works in obedience to Christ. All throughout the New Testament, those two always go together. The the glorious transcendence of the gospel and our response to it always go together. Third example. Beyond even just the general pattern of his letters, the Apostle Paul repeatedly tells us that our works, even those works that we Uh, that occur after we believe in the gospel and follow Jesus, even the ones after we come to Christ, our works will be judged by God in the future. The Apostle Paul says this repeatedly throughout his letters. Listen, Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
And I could actually I could list another, I found another dozen or so examples of this in just Paul's letters, where he says, listen, you know that what you do is going to be judged, evaluated, and rewarded by Jesus. And he's talking to Christians when he says this. So I could go on and read more verses. All these were written by the Apostle Paul, who was the world's greatest champion of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Right? This is, the Apostle Paul is where Martin Luther learned that from. Right? But even Paul expected Christians like you and me to continue on, to press forward in doing good in obedience to Christ. He expected it. And he, there's not one of his letters... That, where that's left out, where he, where, he, where he leaves out the part of, okay, now that you believe this, here's what I want you to do. There's not one of them that's left out. Fourth, here's the fourth example. We, could, we have the example of Jesus himself. I mean, no one is more gospel-centered than Jesus, right? Yeah? But let's consider the longest and fullest description of Jesus' own teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and in a shorter form, in Luke chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, how many times does Jesus talk about justification? Zero. He doesn't speak to it at all, not directly anyway. He definitely doesn't use that word. Do you know what he spends his time talking about? He spends his time talking about the law of Moses, anger, lust, divorce, vengeance, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, fasting, Anxiety and the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. you see, that's what he spends the, the vast majority of his time talking about. Or to put it another way, Jesus spends way more time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about how his followers should act than he does on how they would be saved. Now, I grant you, and I understand, the Sermon on the Mount is not the only teaching we have from Jesus. But it's the biggest collection. It's the biggest, the biggest, uh, it's the, the biggest collection of teaching that we have from him. You see, that, it all makes sense, actually. This is the same Jesus who repeatedly said, and most emphatically repeatedly in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The two are connected in Jesus' own mind. I could go on. I could give you more examples about the New Testament, but that's enough for now. I just want you to, I just want you to see. I want to, I want to, hopefully I've convinced you that the entire New Testament is like this. Yes, the New Testament teaches justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's not the only thing that the New Testament teaches. You see? Does the New Testament's intense focus on our works surprise you? Does that surprise you? Does that catch you off guard? When I read the New Testament, it seems, it seems like God cares a lot more about how I act and what I do. It seems like he cares a lot more about that than I do. I mean, if we're being honest. I wonder, I wonder how it is that we've trained ourselves to care less about these things than God does. You know how is how did that happen? How did how did it happen that we that we spend so much time on the one and we ignore the other? Well, let's take one more close look at the two verses that we have for today. Again, from chapter two, verses twelve and thirteen. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you can see the shape of this passage. The Apostle Paul calls them to obey God, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, because God is at work in them. You see? Now, I've actually heard some people understand this idea of working out your own salvation as something along the lines of God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard, have you heard that phrase? I hope you know that that idea is never taught in the Bible. The phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, was first coined by the English political philosopher Algernon Sidney in 1698. I looked it up. No, it says right there, look at verse 13. It says right there in verse 13 that salvation is a work of God. So what is this working out our own salvation? I mean, that seems to be the whole crux of the thing, right? That's the whole, the whole passage pivots on that. What is this working out our own salvation? One writer put it this way, the apostle wants his readers to do the hard work, the heavy lifting of figuring out for themselves what this business of being saved means in practice. He wants you to wrestle with it. He wants you to be constantly asking yourself, okay, so I believe now what? Okay, so I believe. So what? Okay, so I believe. How is that going to change how I eat breakfast this morning? Right? I mean, until, it, until the information becomes useful, it's useless. Christ died for your sins. Now what? Paul wants them to take responsibility for figuring out the answer to that question. And now notice how seriously he wants them to take it. They are, he says, this is really strong language. They are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, that should surprise you, I think. Yes, salvation is glorious and wonderful and joyful. That's exactly what verses 6 through 11 tell us. But it is also deadly serious. And anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. How seriously do you take your obedience to Jesus? Is your desire to follow him well so strong that you could use the words fear and trembling to describe it? Does that describe you? When was the last time your thinking about Jesus led you to a place of fear and trembling? Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us could claim that level of seriousness or devotion to following Jesus. There's not one of us who's going to raise our hand and say, yeah, fear and trembling, that's me all the time. I don't know. Maybe if it is, maybe you need the other part of the gospel too, you know? But, um, I mean, how seriously do we take this? I mean, here's, here's one, one way that we could describe it. I, I know the answer to this is yes. Have you ever had uh, a situation in a relationship, somebody that you love, where the situation goes so bad that it keeps you up at night and you're filled with anxiety and you can't sleep and it's on your mind and it throws you off at work and it, it maybe makes you lose your appetite. How often has that happened to you about your relationships 
with people. And then, here's the hard question. How often has that happened to you with your relationship with Jesus? How often has fear and trembling been the, the, the result of thinking about him? Well, I don't know. Not very often for me. Probably not often enough. Remember the words Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I suspect that all of us would have to admit that we've neglected this half of our faith. We do okay on the grace part, right? At least we do, it, we do okay on the grace part sometimes. I mean, truthfully, we don't do as, as well on the grace part either. But it's the obedience part that we tend to forget about. Oh yeah, obedience. Hmm. Well, okay, Mr. Apostle Paul, fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. What should we do about all this? You know, how, can we, how can we do this? How can we learn to take our faith more seriously? Well, our passage from last week gives us a start. If you, if you missed last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the work of Christ Jesus. The pattern in verses 6 through 11 in chapter 2, the, ones, the verses immediately preceding this one, talk about Jesus' humiliation and then his exaltation. The pattern of Christ is down, 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 then up, up, up. And I think that's why obedience is really hard for us. Because obedience is humiliation. And we don't like humiliation. We want to skip past the humiliation straight to the exaltation phase, right? Here's an example I have of that. What if, you're, what if you went into work tomorrow and your boss told you, listen, if you want to keep your job, you had better do a better job of obeying me. What if your boss said that to you? How would you react to that? Listen, you need to do a lot more obeying if you want to keep your job. I mean, I don't think any of us would react very well to that. I think we would say, obeying, huh? Is that how this goes? I suspect that would be really hard, to re- hard for us to receive. I mean, but the, the truth is, because we've inherited the rebellious nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we don't like the humiliation of obedience very much. Listen, obedience does not come naturally. Obedience must be learned. Which is, by the way, why it's important for those of you who are parents to be very intentional about teaching obedience to your children from the youngest age. We all, from the youngest age to the oldest, have a lot to learn before we get to be very good at obeying God. We all have a long ways to go on that road. But that's an essential part of what it means to truly be Christian. We have to obey and follow Christ even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Exaltation only follows humiliation. That's the pattern that Jesus himself, himself established. And he calls us to join him in it. That's what the entire New Testament is teaching us. That's what the entire New Testament is emphasizing over and over again. This is what it means to be a Christian. Believe the gospel and then follow Christ in obedience even through the place of humiliation. That's the pattern. And then next week's passage in verse, 13, uh, verse 14 says that we, we have to do it all without grumbling or complaining. 
So maybe, maybe you're, gonna, you, you're like, I, I'm going to skip next week. <laughs> That's too much. I've got to draw the line somewhere, Douglas. All right. Well, hey, it's not me. It's the Apostle Paul and Jesus. So if you're going to argue with someone, be careful. It's the Word of God. So right now you should be thinking, I think you, after all of this, you should be thinking right now, you know, the thing is, I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't do the obedience unto death, you, you know, being humiliated like Christ was. I can't do it. I'm not up for that. To which I think the only honest reply is, exactly. You're exactly right. You're not up for it. And if you try to be Mr. or Miss perfectly obedient all on your own, if you try to willpower it, if you try to say, okay, I'm going to grit my teeth and be as good as I can possibly be. Let me save you some time and frustration. You can't do it. It's over before it begins. Man, that just... Wait, he calls us to do this, but then we can't do it? But listen, never forget. Look at the passage again. Just look at it. Never forget that verse 12, which says, work out your faith with fear and trembling, is followed by verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. For it is God who is at work in you. You see, the apostle already wrote in the first chapter, he who began the good work in you is faithful and he will complete it. And so this whole thing becomes an act of faith. You say, okay, God, I'm going to try to obey you and I know I'm going to fail but I'm going I'm to enter into the humiliation with you. And I have faith that you are going to be the one to complete this work. And on the other side of this whole thing, on the, at the end of this whole business, I'm going to be, I have faith that you're going to make me into the person I'm supposed to be. The one that I'm so desperate to create for myself. The one that I'm trying so hard to generate in my own strength. And you, have, you, either, you either get to the point where you entrust that whole business to God and say, okay, finish the work you began in me. Or you either, you either get to the point where you can entrust it to him or you keep on butting your head against the wall over and over again. So my encouragement to you is to pray to God, plead with him, pursue obedient faith even to the point of fear and trembling. Pursue it all the way down to the bottom of the valley where fear and trembling reside. And ask God to give you the grace that you need to be true followers of Christ Jesus and entrust him to bring you back up out of the valley on the other side. Amen.